tonight, I want to talk to you about, about our, the Word of God. And we're going to look at it from a different perspective for the next couple weeks. And what we're going to do is specifically our own little Mythbusters here on Wednesday nights. But it's not the Mythbusters maybe that you've seen on TV. We're not going to blow anything up, Pastor. As much as I would love to do that, we're not going to do that. I'll do that on my own time, I guess. But um, we're not going to do that. But what we are going to do is bust up some of the myths that people have associated with what they think the Bible says. And this happens all the time where people kind of, there's a catchphrase or... You know, and some, some of these phrases that you've heard associated with Scripture, are, they may not be word for word in Scripture, but they may be a, you know, a distillation of what Scripture says, or at least have the meaning of what Scripture says. And that's fine, but then there's times when they're very misleading. Now, we talked about this kind of in conjunction with some things a few months ago, but I, I just I put together the series that I'm just, there's a bunch of phrases. Does anybody else have pet peeves? Anybody? Is it just me? Okay, maybe yours are different than mine, but this is one of mine. And I, I just, the words matter. They make, they make a difference. So I'm going to give you a pretest. Are you ready? This is a pretest. No grading. Good. <laughs> Anybody like tests? I love tests. Anybody else with me on that end? Okay. All right, well, here's, here's the first one. Um, were the epistles wives of the apostles? Anybody? Yeah. Well, what were epistles? You can just shout it out. It's okay. Yeah, that just means letters in Greek. And so in the New Testament, there's quite a few of the New Testament books which were actual letters written from uh, most of them. Paul wrote the most of them, the Apostle Paul. But there were letters from uh, written like Timothy was written by Paul to Timothy. Philemon was written by, by Paul, but not to Philemon, but to Philemon's actual owner. Philemon was a slave. And his owner, did I get that right or backwards? Onesimus was the slave and Philemon was the owner. Um, Peter wrote a couple letters. So there are different letters in there. Hebrews, we're not even sure who wrote that necessarily. There's a lot of speculation about that. But those would all be epistles, examples of epistles. How about this next one then? Uh, Minor prophets, is that because they were underground? (laughs) Anybody? Do you know why? Yes, but you're cheating a little bit because you've had Bible college background there. Anybody else know why? What would be the difference between major and minor? You would think, at least I used to think, some are more important. Wouldn't you think that? It has nothing to do with it. It's actually exactly right. Charlotte was exactly right, and they are shorter. That's all. (laughs) They're smaller books, so they're called the minor prophets when the major prophets were larger. And they didn't always even put them necessarily in chronological order in the Old Testament. It just, they grouped them by size here. How about Sodom and Gomorrah? Were they married? That's kind of easy, really. That's not even a good question. But yeah, they weren't, they weren't, well, <laughs> yeah, that kind of gets into a kind of a cultural thing we're in now, doesn't it? <laughs> kind of a little bit. Um, yeah, they weren't married. Those were actually two cities. Yeah. How about Hercules? Where would you find him in the Old Testament? You probably wouldn't, because that's from Greek mythology, right? Yeah, you knew that. Um, and this... What, what is that, actually? That's difficult to read. It is one of the minor prophets. It's one of those underground prophets. One of the underground prophets. It has nothing to do with tobacco. But there are a few different ways to pronounce the name of this prophet. Um, I'm curious what you, how you would pronounce it. Anybody? Habakkuk? I never heard that until I was like in college. But Habakkuk? Any other ones? That's the only ones I've heard. But Habakkuk and Habakkuk, I mean, I don't know if it really even matters, but... Um, would you allow your, your young people to read the book of Song of Solomon? 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm not putting any, of this, putting any of it up here. I'm just saying, maybe on your own time tonight, check out chapter 7 and see what you think. <clears throat> How about cleanliness is next to godliness? Where is that found? Pretty much right there on the screen. Yeah, it's not actually in the scripture. I had actually heard at one time that this was from the Quran, and it got me to thinking. And in fact, that's what got me on this exact series. I I was thinking, you know, there's a lot with Islam going on, obviously. I mean, we're, you know, God forbid that it's another Islamic attack on, on the United States, this thing that happened in Boston. But regardless... I heard that once, and somebody said, well, there's a lot of great sayings that, that, that Christians have taken and attributed falsely to the Bible. So I started doing some research onto that, and that's how we ended up in this series. The fact is, that has nothing to do with the Quran. In fact, I couldn't find one saying from the Quran that any Christians would ever use, actually. I couldn't. I couldn't find one, and I searched diligently. There may be some that I'm just unaware of, but that's what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is talk about this. Here's the big problem. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay this out. You may not see this particular problem as big as I do, but I do. And I, I would love for you to have as much passion about it as I do. The first thing is this, that really there's a lot of biblical illiteracy. People just don't really read the Bible a whole lot. It's, and here's the thing, and I understand it. We kind of go to our favorite passages because they're more poetic or more familiar or the stories are more interesting. And in doing so, we leave out a lot of things that are in the scripture and they're in there for a good reason. Another thing, when we do that, we lose at times the context of what was really being said. And it's not as if your favorite scriptures aren't good scriptures and they shouldn't be your favorite. I'm not at all saying that. What I'm saying is that there's more to it than that. Something else that has led me to this, um, it's been a long, long, long time, just telling you as a personal confession, a really long time since I've read the scripture completely through. I've read a book here or there. I do that a lot, but I haven't read the entire scriptures through for a really, really long time. So I I looked at um, my YouVersion Bible app. How many use that? I recommend it highly. A friend of mine from years ago uh, texted me or Facebook message said, hey, what what Bible program do you use? And I use a couple other Bible programs that go on my PC, but the one on my phone, that, that U version, is an incredible tool. And they keep making it better and better and better. And I encourage you to check it out. One of the things that I've used since it came out was, was their Bible reading plans. And there's a ton of them. They have topical ones. If you wanted to read about faith or if you wanted to read about really almost anything, you can find different Bible reading plans. You can find them based on length, you can find them based, again, on topic. But so what I did was I started, I started a few weeks ago um, doing a Bible reading plan, and I thought, you know what? It's been years since I've read the Bible from cover to cover, the whole thing. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to do one of these plans, and I don't want it to take a whole year. I want to do it quicker than that. So I did an eight-month one, which I do recommend, but I'm just telling you, that's a chunk every day, and it's a commitment. But it's a commitment that that I, I'm proud to tell you I've been doing. And it, you know what? Here I am, you know, years in the ministry, years being a Christian. I am finding out new things every day, every single day, every single day. I am finding things that I thought, I should have known this. And it's seeing how it fits and just being, just really being submerged in the word. It's a powerful, powerful thing. So I don't say this about big biblical literacy at all to make you feel guilty. What I'm hoping to do is inspire you to do that also. 
It is something you will not regret. You will never, it will never, you know, there's a scripture that says the Bible will never return void. His word will never return void. I believe that first and foremost for you, you, you will grow. You will benefit. You will not be the same. It's kind of like you see these motivation little things, you know, you see them in stores or whatever, maybe at the gym, motivations for workout, you know, you won't regret this in six months. And that may be true. But for sure, if you do this in the scriptures, in the word, you will not regret it. It will change your life completely. Let me just say a couple other things about it. Biblical literacy is so important also because the Bible itself is the very basis for our faith. More than that, it is the sole source for our faith and our practice. Now, as, a, as an Assembly of God church with our roots um, literally in the holiness movement and then going back through Methodism, you know, with John Wesley and all those traditions back to the Protestant Reformation, we, we don't do things that aren't in the Bible. That's what we do. And if you could say, hey, uh, Pastor Dennis, this it's not in here. It doesn't say this. And if I were to look and see that that was true, what we would do is change what we do because we align ourselves with Scripture. It is the basis for what we believe as Christians and what we do. So you as a Christian, you need to know what that is for yourself. Don't just trust us. I mean, you could trust us, but don't. Don't do that. You as a Christian need to walk on your own two feet, your own two spiritual feet, your own two... uh, (laughs) You have one brain, I guess. Your uh, two hemispheres of your mind and use it. You need to have that for yourself. Walk in it yourself. Know it yourself. Let's take a look at what Scripture actually says about this. This is 2 Timothy three sixteen to 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see the purposes involved in here, right? You need to know it for yourself because this is what we do. And you need to know it, know it for the growth that you're going to experience. Second Peter, uh, Peter said it this way. That last one was from Paul to Timothy. Peter said it this way. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through human, though human, spoke from God as, though, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how we look at scripture, that itself is a living, breathing, breathing thing that's communication directly from God himself. It's his words to you. You could think of it like a love letter from him to you. You could. You could think of it like this, that God wants you to know about him, so he wrote it down so you could see it for yourself. You know, it's a shame that during the Middle Ages and then before that, that, that the Bible was inaccessible to the common man. Obviously, most people during those periods couldn't even read. But the ones who could read, you had to be able to read Latin for the most part to be able to read the Bible for yourself. And that was a tragedy. So that was one of the things that spurred the Reformation, of which I mentioned a minute ago, we are inheritors. That's when Wycliffe translated the Bible into the English vernacular so that the normal common Englander could read it for himself. That was a powerful thing. Don't, don't throw that away. Use that. I think, it was, uh, I think it was Mark Twain said, there's no difference between the illiterate and the literate if the literate doesn't read. That's harsh, I know. <laughs> you might as well not be able to read if you're not going to read it. But read it. Do it. Okay, let's look at more things. I said this a minute ago, and I believe this with all my heart. Words mean things. They have meaning. And there's so many things that are miscommunicated between people, and think, people say things. And how many, how many times have, this, have you uttered this phrase? That's not what I meant. We all have said that. 
Maybe it was our intonation or our attitude or our facial expression that communicated something different than our, our words themselves. Or maybe the words weren't quite straight or quite accurate. But that gets to be a very important thing, especially when you're talking about the words of God. If you are misrepresenting or if somebody's misrepresenting what God himself has said, then you're not going to be able to understand exactly what he meant. That's why I put this up here, this little math equation. Communication is understanding. And I don't want to lose you here, but think about it for a minute. Real understanding is when the person that you are communicating to actually understands what you meant. Not just what you said, but what you meant. Otherwise, communication hasn't happened. So for that to work properly, you need to know what was actually intended to be said, intended to be communicated. That's one of the problems we have when we're trying to communicate cross-culturally. Anybody ever try to do that? You ever try to you ever use one of those little books? Like you, maybe you're somewhere and you have a dictionary and you're going from one language to the other, and the person's just looking at you. With their, and, and, and maybe that's happened to you where someone from, that doesn't speak English has done that, and you're looking at them because you understand the words that were said, but you don't understand what they meant because they weren't in the right order, or they didn't make sense, the syntax, the context, whatever it is, didn't work. So because of that, you didn't communicate. And obviously, you could probably all think of a lot of examples of that, but <clears throat> here's another thing to think about. There's a big difference when you take the Bible and say, this is what the Bible means. That's not really clear enough for me. Because there's certain things that it means, the interpretation of what is being said, but then there's a, tons of applications there's ways that you can apply what was actually being said. So let's just think about it for a minute. If we were to do that with, um, remember that scripture a minute ago? 1 Timothy 3.16? Anybody remember it? All scripture is God breathed. So we could start with all scripture. What does that mean? Does it mean all scripture or all scripture? Think about when Timothy wrote that. What was he including? I'm not Timothy, Paul wrote it to Timothy. When Paul wrote that, what was he including as scripture? Well, he, he included the Old Testament for sure, unquestionably. But during that period of time, there were already letters being circulated that were considered scripture. In fact, there's another reference. I should have put it up here. I didn't even think of it till right now. But there's another reference where Peter mentions Paul's writings as scripture. So my point is this. We could go into a lot of things about what all scripture means, Right? But then when we get into the God-breathed part, we could talk about what that means. Then we could talk about how it's useful for... Remember all the things it was useful for? Teaching, rebuking, correcting. I left one off. Cheater. <laughs> Training in righteousness, exactly. Now you all know what those words mean. You know what the, what the meaning is. You know what the interpretation is. But where's the application? You have to apply it. I mean, those things are useful for all those things. We're applying it somewhat right now because we're teaching, preaching here. But then you have to do it too, and you have to train yourself and correct yourself, and you with your children, and on and on and on. Those are all applications. In righteousness, how does that work? What does that look like? That would be the application. And, and that way, so that you can be um, servants of God, thoroughly equipped to do <clears throat> every good work. All that is part of why we need to know this stuff. But here's the big thing. All of that's important. I don't want to skip over that. I wanted to hurry through that because I wanted to motivate you to read it for yourself. But here's where my pet peeve comes in. This is where it really comes in. I feel personally offended when people misrepresent God. Especially, now hear me here, especially Christians who know better. They should know better. And maybe, maybe they carelessly say something or they well-intentioned say something. And when they say it, unfortunately, there are many times where they give God a bad name. They misrepresent who he is. And that's a serious thing because you really can destroy someone's faith, even your own faith. 
Some of these sayings that we just kind of throw out there eventually whittle away and just chip away at our faith because they get us to start to doubt who God is. Worse, it could even inoculate the unbeliever against becoming a Christian. Think about that for a minute. There are some people that we talk to who need to know God so desperately, but the very words we say not only push them away, but it's almost like an inoculation where they're never going to catch our disease because you fixed it for good in a way. And I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you. I'm just saying that that can happen where people, they're looking for any excuse to, to, to reject him in the first place. And then when you give it to them, we literally can push people away and turn them off to the gospel by the way we say things or the way we misrepresent what God is saying. <clears throat> Um, this this is no relationship to you, but that what's that crazy pl- thing down in Kansas, that church? Westboro Baptist, yeah. And they do that crazy, crazy stuff. I wonder how many homosexuals, how many people who are trying to live for God, how many people have a sincere desire to be kind and good and gracious, look at them and think, yeah, those Christians. Now that's extreme. None of you do that. None of us have ever done anything close to that. However, there are some things that we do that in another way, obviously a less horrible way, represent, misrepresent God. Here's some other things that happens. It reinforces stereotypes that the world has about who Christians are, whether that's that we're simple thinking, that we have blind faith. You know all the things, right? That we're judgmental, we're hateful, we're cruel, we're mean, right? And sometimes the things we say and the way we say them misrepresent true God and who he is and the love that's there and the care he has for all those people. Oh, it's sad. We create doubt in people's minds. You know where this comes from, right? The enemy, he does this. He started doing this from the beginning. That's why Jesus called him the father of liars. All liars. I mean, he is, he is a liar from the beginning. And what's a good lie? A good lie is something that's close enough to the truth that's kind of believable, right? Or something that sounds good, but it's not quite right. That's the best kind of lie. I mean, the upfront lie that's just bold and in your face, you're kind of like, oh, he did not just say that. I mean, but there's other, the other ones where you walk away going, huh, really? Well, maybe. That's the deceptive ones that just eat away at people. You know, think about what he did in the garden. When, when he came to Eve, remember God had told them, Adam and Eve, here's this tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of this one. You can have everything else. Every desire they had was met there. Even the desires within each other. And I'm not just talking about male, female. I'm talking about the, the, the Bible talks about how they complemented one another. They were set. They had everything. And what did the enemy do? He came in and creates doubt in their minds. He said, did God really say? And right away, they're like, well, yeah, he did. did he? Yeah, 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 he did. And it goes on. And it starts to doubt that God had their, his, their best interest in mind. They, they doubted. They got started to doubt God's goodness and who he was. They literally, uh, he literally started to impugn God's character with just a couple questions. Carefully placed questions. The question becomes then, could you really even trust God with your heart? God's intentions. So here's this thing. I know it sounds like a simple phrase, but I want to talk about it for a minute. This whole cleanliness is next to godliness. You ever heard that? You've heard that, right? I, I tend to be a neater person, except for my desk. I always struggle with my desk. <laughs> I mean, I like my shirts ironed. I mean, you know, there's those kind of things. Some people say that it's actually an old Hebrew saying 
I couldn't find any evidence of that, but I, heard, I found a lot of people saying it, it was. I just didn't find any of those Hebrew sayings. There's a lot of Hebrew sayings that are similar to this, and I'm sure most of us can probably think of things in Scripture that are similar to this. Um, here's something that's interesting. Uh, slovenness is no part of religion. Cleanliness is indeed next to godliness. That was actually in a sermon that was printed. Anybody know who? I mean, this is, this is not the test part, right? The test, we already did the test. This is actually by John Wesley in 1769. He said this. And Wesley, um, heavily influenced, you know, certainly being an American, I mean, heavily influenced our movement, American individualism, I mean, the kind of things that Americans value. And this is one of those things. So that phrase slipping into common Christian parlance or people thinking it was a Christian phrase could, it could be attributed to him, I guess, to some degree. But he's not the only one who said it. Uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. And some people do the same by their religion. Does that ring a bell to anybody? Uh, I don't know. I, I never read the whole thing, but uh, Charles Dickens, he, he actually said this, too. He wrote this. It was in one of his works, too. It's Great Expectations, written in 1860. But here's the thing. Let's think about this for a minute. If this is what godliness is, if, th- if this is the whole and long and short of what it means to be godly, I mean, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, my mom said it, too, actually, a lot. My <laughs> you know, I... My mom listens to these sometimes, but which is funny because, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I know not everybody has these stories. Oh, like when I was a kid, you know, we had to, you know, walk to school uphill both ways and all that. But this is true. We never slept in ever for us as a family. And this is one of her lines. It would be, and it was, I mean, I look back on it. It was at the time it seemed really, because I remember on Saturday she'd say, well, there's no need to sleep in. There's things to do. You can always wash the walls. Say that. can't tell you how many times I, that was just one of my jobs that we would do and I just remember thinking how could they be dirty there's only like four of us in the whole house I don't understand that but anyway that's just one of the things we used to do but I've, or I've had friends and maybe this is you and I'm not criticizing it's just something that was just I just remember as a kid growing up I remember going to this this, this one guy's house and we were there and, and uh, we'd, we'd been playing tennis I think it was and we got to the house and we got something to drink it was pickle juice, I actually remember. I don't know why we were drinking that, but we drank pickle juice. And I remember I went into the living room, what I would consider the living room. And I remember walking in, and, he's, and I could hear him go, <gasps> and I thought, what? And I turned around, and he goes, don't move. I'm like, what? And he goes, just walk out of there really quick. I'm like, what? And I remember walking out, and he goes, we don't go in there. I'm like, Why? Because that's only for like when people come over special things. And then I noticed the room. They had plastic covers over all the couches. They had, I mean, it was, it was literally, it looked like something right out of a magazine. The carpet was white, all that stuff. And he was just saying, he was, I know she's going to see your footprints. And I'm thinking, wow. Okay, now that is clean. That's different. I'd never experienced anything like that before. But, but I have seen things, you know, like I know Nicole and I, we do this from time to time. If we're going to go somewhere, we'll like a trip or something, we'll clean the house before we go. So you come home to a clean house. It's a good feeling. I love that. Or when guests are coming over, or lately Theo, dis- my son, discovered hoarders on TV. You guys ever seen that? <laughs> and he'll be talking to me like, Dad, you will not believe it. They're walking right on this stuff in their bare feet. I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's different. But my question then is, is God, does he have a hang-up about this? I mean, 
does he really care about this cleanliness thing that much? Because if so, I think that communicates something to people that miscommunicates what he really, really, really cares about. So if you wanted, though, to look at Scripture, you could, get the mis- mis- you could misrepresent it that way, and some people have. Because if you look at Leviticus and Numbers, there's a lot of rules about cleanliness in there, right? Anybody ever actually read it? Come on. Okay, about 10 of us. All right. Um, if you, anyway, there's a lot of rules in there. It's really interesting. Ceremonially clean, physically clean, a lot of details. And in there, they do talk about being unclean as being defiled. So I could see where people would kind of start to get the idea, hold on. This is an interesting God. I mean, he's got his people walking around in the desert, living in tents, but if they're dirty, they're not acceptable to him. I mean, what does that mean? What does that mean to us? I mean, is, it, is he really that superficial? I mean, is it really that kind of a thing? What is it all about? Why does it even matter? There's all these rules about foods and dead things and diseases. I mean, it gets really specific. Here's what you should remember first. Always remember this. Every rule God has and has ever had, his intention is for your good, always. He's always looking to protect and provide for you, no matter what the rule is. Just like you with your kids. It's the same thing. It really is. When you tell your kids not to go in the street, it's not because you don't want them to run wherever they want to run. It's because you care about them. You want to protect them. There's things that God was doing here. He was protecting them and providing for them in some very specific ways, at a very specific way, at time in their history as a people, as a culture. It's really an interesting thing to look about. Just let me just give you one, one little picture. This comes from the book of Leviticus. He tells them to take animal fat and then the ashes from wood to burn it and then to add water. Does anybody know what that is? Soap. Soap. It's soap. He was telling them to wash your hands before you eat. The same stuff you do. But people back then weren't doing that. There's actually a hundred different verses that talk about mold and mildew. Why? Why? Wouldn't you do the same thing, though? You do the same thing in your own basement. You take care of it, right? Because it matters. It's important. But they lived at a time where none of these things were really on people's radar. I mean, people were living in a different time, and he was setting them apart. Long before Louis Pasteur figured out that there were germs and things, God was telling him, if something is dead or something dead falls on your stuff, don't use your stuff anymore. And some people look at that and they go, oh, that's silly. Who would do that? You know what? People did it. They didn't know that's where those germs came from. And God was protecting them and trying to provide for them in a very, very basic way without going into all this detail. I mean, I guess he could have wrote in there, hey, there's little little, tiny things that you can't see that make you sick. And then what would happen? I don't know. I mean, they didn't believe Louis Pasteur either until he did all these experiments and tried to prove it. What happened was, what he did was he created with them a really unusual people. I mean, they lived totally differently. They were very health conscious. This set them apart from everybody else of that time. Now, some of the rules, you know, you may look at and you think, ah, that was a little over the top. I don't know that they necessarily needed to do that, or we may not do it today. But as he did it, he had a purpose in mind. You may remember that, you know, pastor has mentioned a few times that the Jews are God's chosen people. Why did he choose them? I don't mean why, like, why them and not somebody else. I mean, what was the purpose of choosing anybody? The purpose was to communicate who he was to the world. And unfortunately, they lost that. 
They didn't get it. They got sidetracked on this whole cleanliness thing and a lot of other things, and they misinterpreted what he was doing, and then they misrepresented that to the world. Part of the reason that people think that um, uh, you know, Judaism and Christianity and all those religions are weird is part of the reason is because they got the whole wrong message there. They were supposed to be a blessing to the world. That was the whole idea. Instead, they interpreted that as being superior, just like we do at times, right? I'm better than you because I'm more religious. I'm cleaner, right? Now, I'm not saying I don't want to be dirty. I'm, and if you're dirty tonight, I apologize, but that's not what it's about. The idea is this. They got hung up more on those re- re- regulations, and they put the regulations before they did the relationship with God himself. They totally got sidetracked, and they missed the whole point. Do you see the danger in this? I mean, I know it's a throwaway phrase, and it probably doesn't even matter that much, but to say that cleanliness is next to godliness misses the whole point. That's not what it's about. They developed a sense of spiritual pride. And I'll tell you, there's, uh, talking about pet peeves, one of my biggest pet peeves is people who are arrogant or you know, haughty or any of those things. But more than that are people that are spiritually arrogant. You know anybody like that? Ah, oh, it drives me nuts. I, and, and you know what? It drove Jesus nuts. And you know what? It drives everybody else nuts. And all these people who are looking for any excuse to reject Christianity, that's a good reason, a really good one, and one that they'll latch on to immediately. And unfortunately, the Jews did this. Um, I saw this on a church marquee a few years ago, and I took a picture and I couldn't find it, but it said, the church where the Holy Spirit has his way. I was just thinking about that spiritual pride thing. Because right away, I'm like, Wait, hold up. Are you saying that's the church where the Holy Spirit has his way because no one, he doesn't have his way nowhere else? Or we're, You get it? You see? Okay, it still happens today. So anyway, the Jews got hung up in all this empty ritual thing. Unfortunately, the rituals themselves, they ended up being a substitution for the relationship with God himself. God had set up all these rules and gave them to them, and instead they got sidetracked on all those things. It, it, it's like the trivial details became more important. God was telling them to wash your hands, to protect and provide for you, but it got carried away. And this this problem extended directly into Jesus, and he has an encounter with these religious leaders. And here it is in Mark chapter 7. I want us to take a look at it and apply it to ourselves today. They, those are the religious rulers, in this case they are Pharisees, noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. And then Mark Um, writing for Peter, gives us a little explanation. He says, the Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Were they washing their hands to be clean? Not really. It was about tradition. Now, do you wash your hands before you eat? I hope you do. You should, right? But have you ever been to like traveling maybe in an open air market and... Bought something off of a taco stand? Did you wash your hands? I don't, because there's nowhere to wash your hands. My hands are probably cleaner than anything I'd wash them in at sometimes, you know what I'm saying? So anyway, in this case, they're not washing their hands. And the Jews aren't upset that there might be getting disease or, hey, guys, that's unsanitary. No, they're upset because they're not following Jewish ritual. And Mark makes it very clear that's the issue. So here in Mark, uh, in the next verse, it says, similarly... They don't eat, talking about the Jews, the the ritualistic Jews, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. 
This is but one of many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, really, this is not against washing those things. Please continue to wash things. That's not it. What he's pointing out here is that these guys were all hung up again on the tradition, and they're trying to criticize Jesus and his disciples because they're not doing the traditional things. So then here's the problem. With those empty rituals, again, they became substitutes for the relationship. They forgot what it was about, the trivial details. Wash your hands. Here's a good line. Cleanliness was not next to godliness. It became the godliness. Do you see the difference? That's the problem. That alone became their, the representation of their godliness. Jesus answers them. He replies, Isaiah, and you know they hated, 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 hated when Jesus quoted the scriptures to them. Because they can't argue with that. They can't say, oh, you don't have any right to say that kind of thing to us. What he's saying is the, 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 the prophets, which you respect, they were talking about you. Isaiah was right when the prof- he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Ouch. I mean, he stuck it right to them. And this is right in front of everybody. And he goes on a couple verses later. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. And then a couple verses, uh, next verse, he says, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean. Now, what he means by unclean is spiritual. He's going back to spiritual things while they're still talking about dirty hands and dirty cups and stuff. But nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Out of a man. (laughs) And then he goes on a few verses later. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. I love how Jesus did this. He did this all the time where they would be so hung up on physical, temporal things and he would take it right to the heart where it really matters, where things really, really count. It's the problem with religion. Religion focuses on the outside rather than the inside. If I look right, if I look like I have it all together, then everything is good. It's all about appearance and performance instead of actually knowing God. It's the doing things over the being. God's far more concerned with the being than what you do. Of course, doing is important, but he's more concerned about why you do it and where it comes from. It's ritual that doesn't have any meaning. You know, when we celebrate communion, there's meaning behind it. That's why when pastor leads us in communion, he pauses and explains the meaning so that the meaning isn't missed Because if you just go through the motions of communion, then it's meaningless. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. The sad thing is that they'd become superior in themselves and felt like they were better than everybody else just because of appearance and what they did on the outside. And as if their actions made them a better person. It appeals to our flesh. We all want to be superior, don't we? Really? A little bit? Just a little. And if we get just a little leg up on the next person, we all want that. We do. That's how we're wired. But what he is saying here is that's not what it's about. It's outward respectability versus the heart and what's on the inside. 
I heard somebody say this once, that you can never judge, really judge a man's heart. Now, obviously, we can judge actions, and there's many times in Scripture where we're told to look at a person's fruit, and we can see actions, but you really don't know the heart. You don't know the inside. You don't know where a person's been or why they're doing what they're doing or what's going on in their mind. You don't know when they've asked for forgiveness or how hard they're trying. We just don't know those things, and it's so tempting to make all these judgments, and we do it based on what people do on the outside. It's like Pastor says often. I love this. He says, we judge ourselves by our intentions, but we judge other people by their actions. Religion is about rituals, meaningless doing things over and over and over. But we're not like that, right? Yes. Let's go home. (laughs) We don't have any of these problems. I mean, we've been dunked, right? You've been baptized, so you're good. If you haven't, then we're better than you, right? We're tongues talkers, so we're more spiritual. Oh, absolutely, yes. Can I tell you a joke? Okay, so this little kid, he's, his uh, dog just had puppies. So he's got this little box of puppies, and they're brand new, brand new puppies. And so on one end of the street, there's a Baptist church, and on the other end of the street, there's an Assembly of God church. So what happens is the Baptist preacher and the Assembly of God preacher would often walk at the same time every day, and they would usually meet right in front of this house, and you know they'd say hi to each other, but both of them knew that the other was more spiritual and their church was better, and on and on and on, of course. Well, this one day, the, the Baptist preacher was walking. He didn't see the Assembly of God preacher, and he just kept walking. And he comes up to the puppies, and he says to the little boy, he says, oh, hey, little boy, what kind of puppies are there? And the little boy, you know, he, he was expecting, you know, a breed come out, a breed, you know, I don't know, they're poodles or whatever. Instead, the little boy looks around, and he looks down at the Assembly of God church, and he looks at the Baptist church, and he looks at the pastor, and he says, oh, these are Baptist puppies. And that Baptist preacher, I mean, he just got a little jump and he just skipped along. And as he was walking along, then the Assembly of God preacher comes out and he goes, hey, you've got to meet this little boy. Have you met this little boy? And he goes, no, I've never met him. What, what's about him? He goes, oh, he's the sweetest little thing and he's got some puppies. You'll have to meet him. And just then the little boy went in the house and he thought, oh, well, we'll have to find him another day. And so a few weeks later, he comes out and there's the little boy with the puppies. So the, the Baptist preacher's waiting and waiting and waiting, looking out his window and he sees when the Assembly of God preacher comes out and as they walk out, he times it just right so they meet right in front of the little boy. And he says, here's that little boy I was talking about. And the assembly guy preacher says, oh, okay. And he says, he goes, hey, watch this. Hey, what kind of puppies are those? And he's waiting for the answer. And the little boy looks at the Baptist preacher, looks at the Baptist church, looks at the assembly guy preacher, looks at the assembly guy church, and he says, these are assembly guy puppies. And the pastor, what? Hey, just a couple of weeks ago, you told me that these were Baptist puppies. And the little boy says, well, that was before their eyes were open." yeah and we're better than them because we dress better right and suits we don't have i mean yesterday at uh, helen's mom's funeral you know a few people were wearing suits and i almost wore a suit helen and i've got a lot of suits i love i mean it's fun to dress up but i didn't wear one all day i know you didn't care but i i mean i thought about it and and people who were wearing suits looked really nice nick nick had a suit on and um, and that's fine. You know, some people really dress to impress. There's nothing wrong with that, really. I mean, really. As long as you don't have tattoos, right? <laughs> or smoke or drink or chew or go with girls that do, or right? I thought about this. You know, some people, they'll, they'll be like, uh, ah, bless God, I've been in church 30 years. But that, if it hadn't changed you, then what's the point? 
Because you could be in your garage there for 30 years and you're not going to be a car. None of that matters, ultimately. You know, it used to be what kind of Bible you had or how big it was or if you had a Christian bumper sticker. And we kind of come full circle where like, like we're begging people, don't put a Christian sticker on your car unless you're like the perfect driver. Because the first time you cut somebody off or go too slow or whatever you do wrong, they're going to say, ah, Christians. <laughs> Here's what Christians are supposed to be. Supposed to be. Jesus said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and servant of all. He also said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Has nothing to do with tradition. Has nothing to do with ritual. Has nothing to do with cleanliness next to godliness. Has everything to do with living like he did and being like him. He also said, God is spirit and worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. James put it this way, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Wow, that's a heavy measure. That's a totally different measure than the one we usually have. You can't buy that suit at store. No monogram cross on your lapels is going to make that do that. Going Old Testament on you. Jeremiah 2.22 says, Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. Whew. So how clean is clean? How clean do you need to be to be close to God? Most of us feel like just as long as we're cleaner than the next guy, right? I mean, in our minds, we always do that. I always do that. Even if I'm at the gym working out, I hate, I hate that I do this, but I'll do it. I'll see. I wonder what he's lifting. Oh, I can lift that. Really? Like that matters. None of that matters. And I look at it and I think, God, I'm such an idiot. And he says, I know. And how about if you're mostly clean? Mostly clean. Mostly? How about if you're mostly faithful? How's that going to work with your husband or wife? Mm, ouch. How about your actions or thoughts? I mean, if I'm clean on the outside, isn't that good enough? I mean, if, if my mind is not clean, it's going to eventually come out on the outside. Huh. Our motives. Isaiah, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. He is so gracious to us. Though your sins shall be as, our sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't know about you, but as I was working through this, I realized that I fall short so many times. And that silly phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness, leads people astray. But more importantly, I lead people astray. But my actions, my attitudes, what I say, what I do, those are the things that matter. And what really matters is that we, we really have that relationship with God, and we're not hung up on those false things that we have assigned ourselves as being good and righteous, because none of it matters. Nobody here knows. There's no way we can look at you and know. Only you and God knows. And if there's things in you that need to be cleaned, then make them clean tonight. Here's the thing. Let's, oh, what in the world? 
I want to, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to bow your heads for a minute. And I want to read to you, not the whole Psalm, but Psalm 51. This is an incredible, incredible Psalm that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba was exposed. Technically, there was no forgiveness for his sin. There was no sacrifice. He'd committed so many sins. But I want you to hear what he said. This is his prayer to God, which should be and could be our prayer tonight. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion and it haunts me day and night. Against you and you only have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back the joy again that you have You have broken me, now let me rejoice. Verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. You do not desire sacrifice or I would offer one. You don't want to burn offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit you will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. With your head still bowed and your eyes closed, and Dave, if you could play some music for us for just a moment, I just want to give you an, a moment, an opportunity for you, between you and God alone. If you, like me tonight, just need to share some things and confess some things to him, I want to give you a moment here before we dismiss for you to do that. In the safety and the quietness and the privacy of your...